The purpose of today's sermon is as simple as could possibly be. It's to encourage you to pray. That's about it. To be a house of prayer for all nations, as we'll find it put. So let's start with a prayer. Father, would you fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, and collectively would we host your presence in this place such that it would be known and tangible even to an outsider, that they might know you, and if nothing else, would they know your love and be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, open it up to Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to jump around a little bit today, but we're going to start right here, starting in verse 1. Isaiah is the first of the major prophets, so if you're in Psalms or Proverbs, go a little bit further. If you're in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, go back just a little bit. You'll find it in no time. Not far from the middle. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8 says this. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants... All those who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. It's the first Sunday of the new year today. Maybe you know. While the new year itself is a rather arbitrary marker, uh, with it we're given a cool opportunity. We get to look back, like we discussed earlier, on the things of our past, and we get to look forward into the things of our future. And in doing so, hopefully, we gain a better understanding of who we are and of who we can be. And today is an extra special new year here at North Holland because this year, God, the sovereign Lord, who has gathered us together, is about to gather still others to us. As we just witnessed, this is the commissioning Sunday for our new after-school program, The Crossing, and I'm pretty thrilled about it. We already dedicated our building a while back ago, but we've been waiting for this. Having looked intently at our past, 
with a prophetic eye into our future, a small collection of key individuals dreamed up what kind of neighbor North Holland could be. We have persons who are gifted, they noticed. They said, we have a space that God has given us. And out of those observations and that dreaming has come this new endeavor, as is worded in the pamphlets, to invest in the students and families of North Holland Elementary by helping with homework, sharing a meal, and building strong friendships. The vision is simple, yes, but despite its mild language, it is a kingdom vision, and profoundly so. This is significant work that we're embarking on. Not only will the students of North Holland Elementary be crossing the street to enter our doors to do their homework, but today marks the day that we as North Holland Reformed Church are crossing into a new way of being with our neighbors so that through our love and care, the doors of North Holland and more importantly, the doors of heaven might be opened to them. That is the purpose of the crossing. And the purpose of this sermon is to remind you to pray, because we need you to pray, to pray for the crossing, to pray for your neighbors, to to pray. The route we took in this building project was not a perfectly straight one, as Stephen especially will recall. The route we took to finally launch the crossing had more than its fair share of sharp turns and edges. So, of course, even though we already know where we're going in this sermon, to be a house of prayer for all nations, we'll meander around a little bit to get there. So once again, open your Bibles, if you have them with you, take out your notepads if you're interested. This time to Mark, sorry, not Mark, Matthew chapter 2. You've heard this read already today by Pastor Stephen in our call to worship. And this is the gospel lectionary text for today, for Epiphany, for this celebration of the kings witnessing the king. It's an appropriate one for shortly after Christmas. It takes place shortly after the birth of Jesus, uh, but we'll not stay here long on this Christmas celebration day. The story of the Magi who visit Jesus and offer him gifts is a fascinating one. They're fascinating characters. They're foreigners, mysterious, neither Jewish nor particularly familiar with Jewish customs, and yet God grants them, at this most critical moment in history, The privilege not only to witness the newborn Christ, but to actually bless him. They actually bless the one who is the giver of all blessings. What a gift to them. As always, the scriptures are full of wonder when given even just a passing glance. And I would love to dwell more on the magi and what this means, or the kings, or the wise men, or whatever they are. But today's not the day. We've got to move on. What is most critical about this story to us in this critical time of ours as pertains to the critical moment in history that this story narrates is simply this, Herod versus Jesus. Stephen already brought this up. Audrey's talked about it this Christmas season, as have others. But God presents this stark contrast between the absurdly wealthy, absurdly cruel Herod, who bought his throne through injustice, and the small infant Christ laid in a manger, helpless, poor, weak, 
The Magi went first to Jerusalem looking for the king foretold in palaces and temples. They saw the big temple that Herod had built. They saw these sanctuaries. They saw these places. They thought, surely the king must be here. But they were informed, no, they did not find him there. Instead, the star led them to Bethlehem, a small rural town. A little note. Herod was in his palace, and Jesus was in his stable. Now, at this point in Jesus' life, he didn't have much to say with regard to his home. Very few infants get to choose where they're born. Raise your hand if you did. Me neither. But if Jesus is really king, the question about uh, what his palace, what his house will look like, is actually kind of a fascinating one. He was born in a stable. Is that what his kingdom will always be centered around? Let's see. King Herod is, to this day, one of the most well-known and magnificent architects in world history. If you ever get the chance to visit Israel or the Mediterranean, you'll see some of the most incredible, as far as scale and artistry goes, uh, feats of architecture. He built homes and palaces, which continue to marvel the modern world with their scale and ambition. And he wasn't the only king of Israel famous for his home. If you recall, David and Solomon both built large, artful homes, sometimes to the displeasure of our Lord. What does Jesus have to say about his home? He is the true king of Israel, after all, right? Will he follow in this pattern? What will it look like? Now, a question for you. Jesus has a hometown. Where's his hometown? Nazareth. I saw your lips move. <laughs> but he never calls anything his house but one place. Where is the one place that Jesus calls his house? The heaven is a close one. It's the temple, the one worldly place, right? Turn to Mark chapter 11. He calls the temple his home on two separate occasions, at least. One is when he's just a 12-year-old boy. His mother and father abandoned him. Peculiar, yes. They, they misplaced him, what? They misplaced him, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was slippery. But he says to them, where did you expect to find me but in my father's home? And on this occasion, in Mark chapter 11, he returns to this home again. He says, it says of him, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts, and he taught them, saying, now before we get to what he said, I want us to notice the moment here. As far as the Gospels care to record it, and this is true in each of the Gospels. This is the first time in Jesus' life of ministry that he enters Jerusalem. And you should know the first time something happens is a rather significant thing. The first time. And not only notice that, but notice the conflict in this room. This is not a moment of peace and agreement. And it's not hard to see. He's flipping tables. He's yelling. He's blocking traffic. This is a critical moment, a first moment at a most significant place, the temple, which he calls his home, unlike any other, and a moment of conflict. This is a crossroads, a word that's 
perked our ears already today. This is a king entering his kingdom. So another question for you, if you are in your life at a critical moment, what sort of things ought you to say in these critical moments? Think back on a time and maybe try and remember. What was a moment of crisis, a moment that demanded leadership, a first, a significant first? What did you fall back on to say? How did you lead in those moments? If you're a coach in a last-minute situation, what do you share with your team? If you and your spouse are in an argument or you need to make a big decision, what sort of things do you say? Is that the time you bring up old, petty frustrations with each other? Maybe, unfortunately. Or is that the time when you remind your spouse, I made these vows, and you made those vows. We're in this together. Or if you're in business leadership, and you have to negotiate maybe a major deal, or maybe you have to navigate some sort of significant turnover of employment, is that the time you bring up your distaste for brand colors or something other frivolous? Or is that the moment when you double down on your vision and you lean into your core strengths and the leaders that you do have. In critical moments of church history, we've talked a lot about this in the past, it was around these moments of conflict, specifically conflict around points of heresy, that some of our most significant work was done when we put our greatest minds together to dwindle down what was most significant into things we call the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Belgic Confession, the Canons of Dort, the foundations of our faith. Because in moments of conflict, in critical moments, in major moments, it's not the superfluous, it's not the frivolous, it's not the peripheral, but good leaders push and pull towards the most critical, most essential things. And they lay hold of them. And they remind of them. And Jesus, dare I say it, is a good leader. Jesus will not lead you astray. Jesus will guide you to fresh water, to good food, to green grass. And here, in this conflict, in this most critical moment, when he enters his house for the first time in his ministerial life, when he's flipping tables because things are so drastically wrong, he gives to the crowds what is most fundamental most basic, most true. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Beloved of God, pray, because this is the most essential thing, the most defining characteristic of the house of God, that it is a people gathered to pray. 
in the presence of the Lord, and not just a people unified by tribalism or nationalism or shared something or other, but all nations gathered together in one space to pray to the one Lord by the one Spirit. The purpose of this sermon is to remind you to pray. Or maybe it's to help incite you to a life of prayer for the first time. I know this is important um, because even while I was a Christian by name and a church attender like many of you are today, for much of my life I knew nothing about prayer. I was about, let's see, approaching 18 years old. I'd been a Christian again my entire life when I had this profound revelation (laughs) that said, wait, I've gone to church most every Sunday. Can you do the math? Anyone do the math on that real quick? What's 18 times 50? Close, 900. 900 Sundays, right? And in my life at home, I realized I don't pray. (laughs) I've never prayed. I don't read the Scripture. I've never read the Scripture. How did I reach that many years of living before realizing that the most essential thing, possibly, with regard to the discipline of the Christian was missing almost completely from my life. And it wasn't until others, namely my sister, my grandmother, my grandfather, a couple close friends, devoted themselves to prayer for me that my ears were finally chiseled open just enough to receive that revelation. Hey, maybe if I'm going to follow this man Christ... I should pray. And I did. And it was like water that I'd never tasted before. And when I opened the Scriptures with this new set of eyes to see because the Spirit received my prayer when I prayed, Lord, would you come and grant me grace? It was like a world being opened to me. And prayer moved from a, a, a thing that I did before meals, maybe, or my family did before meals, or we did at church together in liturgical moments, to a, a way of thinking, to a way of being, to a way of existing. And it made all the difference, and all I wanted to do was pray, because in the moment of prayer, I was with God, and what greater thing as the three magi who traveled many deserts and lands will tell you than to be with the king. And the life of prayer affords us that privilege. In many ways, this sermon is for myself because even though I've known this transformative power of prayer and the holy presence of God, I still often grow weary of it for some reason. I cease praying in any profound way. I neglect praying. I've been fortunate enough to see quite literally broken legs healed in front of my eyes because of prayer. Sick people healed because of prayer. Incredible sums of money brought to people in need with little work but prayer. I've seen the power of prayer, and yet I neglect it. I forget it. Sometimes I grow bored of it. You resonate? Being bored during prayer? And eventually I long for it again, But maybe by then I've become convinced of the lie that there's no time for that sort of thing. Or or there's really no purpose in this. God's just going to do what he's going to do anyway. 
Or maybe there's just something more interesting to do than prayer, right? But in my best moments, I, with Jesus' disciples, I'm able to cry out and say, Jesus, teach me how to pray. I believe you when you say that this is what we're to be, a people, a house of prayer. Teach me how to pray. And what gets me most excited today, I think, is that Jesus has already given us an answer to that question. When I look out at you, I see people who know how to pray. I see people who have been taught how to pray for one he shared us the template of prayer, right? For those, it's not been long since we did a whole series on the Lord's Prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We know this prayer. We can pray through this. This is a wonderful template. But even more than that, I look out at you and I see people with whom God has shared his Holy Spirit, who gives us words when we have none, who prays through us when we can do little more but groan and moan with the nothing that we have left. And who, when in moments of crisis, are promised by God to be given even eloquent words beyond your wisdom. I know you know how to pray because I know that God has promised to give you the Holy Spirit, to give it to any of you who ask. And that's awesome. That's good news. And if we ever doubt even our own prayers, the Holy Spirit with us, Jesus himself has taken place in heaven by the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf. And the Father will surely listen to him. As such, it is far less a matter of how we pray, whether we need to know the right tools, the right techniques, the right methods, etc., etc., than it is important that we pray. So, brothers and sisters, simply today, as we look into our past, what we've been, and as we look into the future that God is calling us to, to love our neighbors, to build up this church, to build up this house. Be people who pray. And as you take up the inexhaustible mantle of prayer, you'll find it is itself an inexhaustible endeavor. As the 12th century mystic Bernard of Clairvaux put it, I have climbed up to the highest that is in me and see the word is far, far above. A curious explorer, I have plumbed my own depths And he was far deeper than that. If I looked outward, I saw far beyond him. Or I saw him far beyond. If I looked inward, he was further in still. And I knew that what I had read was true. That in him we live and move and have our being. But blessed is he in whom he has his being, who lives for him and is moved by him. As you pray, you will find yourself finding God. And he'll pull you deeper, and he'll pull you higher, and he'll pull you further. So there are plenty of tips and tools and lessons to be taught and learned regarding this limitless practice of prayer that I would love, again, to explore with you today, but today is not the day. What we must yet do today before we close is look more closely at these critical words Jesus spoke in the temple courts and highlight especially one thing. He did not pull them out of nowhere, but he pulled them from somewhere, and that somewhere is, as we've already read, Isaiah chapter 56. So reopen that with me if you can. Jesus is always stating what God has already said, and most often if he says something brief, his intention is that we know the point of reference and pull even greater meaning from it. So again, as our hearts are being readied for prayer, let's look at Isaiah chapter 56 and see again the specific call 
Jesus is calling each of us to individually and together. Of everything Jesus could have referenced as the most essential characteristics of his house, as we look for that because we've established this new house, this, this is it. Hear these words again. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. In case you didn't know, a eunuch is somebody who has sacrificed the ability to have children in order to be devoted wholly to the Lord. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree for this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. So, beloved of God, if you are growing weary of your prayers, have faith, because God sees God hears and he will bless you. And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister him, to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all those who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Foreigners who feel like you don't belong, this is your place to pray. This is your place too. Brothers and sisters who feel fully welcome here, pray for the foreigners that they may come because it belongs to them. That's who we pray for. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer For all nations, the sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Let's pray together. Father, as we open our doors, this is our desire to follow you faithfully, to be everything that you've called us to be, to be a people of prayer, to be a house of prayer even in our own bodies and in our daily goings, Lord, would our bodies themselves be temples of your prayer for all nations? Would you open our eyes to see our neighbors, those who are foreigners living among us, that we might pray for their salvation, that we might pray for their blessing, and whether or not we see it come, Lord, would they know in their heart of hearts that you love them? And God, would they know upon stepping into this place that there is no wall to keep them out, that there is no merchandise that we're trying to sell them, but that this place belongs to you and therefore belongs to them. Father, do teach us how to pray. 
And more than ever in these days, would you convict us by your spirit to pray? Would it be the first thought when we wake up in the morning? And would you be the last thought on our mind? And would you fill every gap in between as we seek to bring your kingdom to this world and to be the ones who are inhabited by you? Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, Father God, amen.